And welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I satisfy my own curiosities and I learn something new and then I justify all my time investment by teaching it to someone else. Hopefully you guys. Uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I'd also like to welcome back special guest Warren to the show. Yep. Uh, Warren's, you know, one of those history buffs that memorizes whole lines of succession for the fun of it all. So, um, I like that stuff. It's in my wheelhouse. And so I thought he'd be really helpful to another European history type of topic because there are certainly, I don't know, just tons of stuff going on in the background politically, you know, historically at this point that, um, I tried to learn as best I could, but it's complicated and there's lots of royals and they're all named the same thing. Shocking. Yeah. Well, Shocking. if nothing else, I also am good with dumb jokes, so I supply that too. That's yeah. excellent. Um, so, I mean, I feel silly introducing topics like you don't know what it's going to be because I assume you read the title of the episode that we're going to create after I finish recording this. No, they were in such um, a hurry. They're like, it's new. I got to click on it. That was on autoplay, and it just goes on to the next one. Okay, Is that so you know, for yeah, all, sure. for all okay. those people in that very narrow range of circumstances. Um, Today, we're going to talk about Vlad the Impaler, as some people call mm-hmm. him. Um, and, and yeah, I'm hoping that Warren will help with some of the history and geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, I know all a little the bit of that. Crazy royals, you know? Yeah. Well, how about you teach me something? Okay. Um, speaking of historical context, I want to talk about the invention of the printing press to start. I mean, oh, I'm just going to throw you a curveball. We're going to start in Germany. Yeah. Curveball. I uh, didn't see that coming, huh? Okay. So sometime in the 1430s or 1440s, because every source says a different thing, um, German golds- goldsmith? Yes. Goldsmith, Johannes Gutenberg, invents the printing press. Um, and he basically was trying to make a machine capable of making pages of text at a much faster speed than they currently could. Um, and apparently he got into designing this not because of some kind of love of books. It was because he had a lot of losses from his failed attempt to sell metal mirrors. Hmm. And he oh, really? was like, this might be my get rich quick scheme that could sure. recoup my losses. He just thought it would be popular, which is fair enough. Um, it, and it was, to, yeah. be, to be fair to him. He was right about that. Yeah. Yeah. So he put together a bunch of um, un- other inventions and simple machines. He built it around a traditional screw press. Um, and they had individually cast letters that they could put on this, like, matrix and then just arrange it and then go stamp, 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 stamp. Um, which is much quicker than what they used to do, which is block printing where you have to carve a block of wood with what you wanted to say. So that carving process, um, took a lot of time and then it would go quickly after that. But like the carving just took so long. Printing press really speeded that up. Um, Gutenberg also created a unique oil based ink, which transferred from the metal type to the like printing substrate, whatever you might be using um, more effectively than the water bank based inks that other printers were using. So okay. just 
made a lot of printing a lot of better. And That's that was good. important. It is, yeah. But, you know, why am I talking about that right now is the, is the question. So in 1454, it came into commercial use. Um, and it started being used to make in what are called indulgences for the church. Oh, yeah. Catholics. Mm. Woo! Um, yeah. yeah. Like flyers, I guess. Yeah. Little, Catholics? Yeah. Pa- yeah. Um, so, and then, of course, in the following year, he prints his famous 42-line Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, that was the first book printed on a movable-type press in the West, that is. Oh. Talk about China and other places that printed things. Okay. Japan. They all printed things. Anyways. Um, so, we're pretty sure Vlad the Impaler, Vlad the Third, whatever you want to call him, wasn't, like, completely misrepresented in history. Like, people didn't make up all the stuff he did completely. Maybe it was exaggerated, though. They liked to do um, a lot of exaggeration back then, especially of important people. Right. And the story we're about to tell you... You know, it's in the mid-1400s, same time as the invention of the printing press. Uh, the 60s and 70s, the 14s, 60s and 70s, were where they started, like, stories about Vlad started being printed. Right. And so his reputation kind of spread like wildfire throughout Europe. And who maybe was making the printed materials? It probably wasn't Vlad's friends. So can you trust completely what his enemies might have been saying about him? And then, like I said, it just spread everywhere very, very quickly. Um, so I would, the rise of the printing press allowed Vlad to become famous. Mm-hmm. And also the price of that fame, you know, infamy, uh, was probably people are telling some lies about him. So we got to take things with people telling lies. A grain of salt. I never. No, nope. I've never even heard a lie before. So <laughs> this is hard to believe. <laughs> but I mean, the stories are consistent. So historians think that they're true, like the base stories that mm-hmm. are being told here. But there probably were embellishments to the story, exaggerations in numbers, in quotes, like things like that. Um, so there was one called A Tale of Dracula, a book published in 1490 by a monk who just thought Vlad was just, he was fierce, okay, but he was just, he was a just ruler, so, oh well. Uh, there are other ones that they kind of were trying to make more horrific and make into bestsellers by making these woodcut title pages that had illustrations of the terrible things Vlad had done on this, like, Mm. title page. Um, they really did go all out for their title pages back then. Yeah, so sure. there was some editions published in Nuremberg in uh, 1499 and Strasbourg in 1500 that showed Val dining at a table surrounded by, you know, dead people on poles. Yeah, as you do. That's as you thing, do. Right? Yeah. Dinner party, I think they call those. <laughs> Fancy dinner party. Why are my guests so quiet? Yeah. I don't think they were quiet when they were dying of impalement, but we'll get to that. Um, so we're still going on tangents because that's what I do. Of course. We're not going to talk about Vlad's actual life yet. Exploits. We're going to talk about another cool tangent, which was a recent study that they did of Vlad's possible medical conditions. Okay. Oh. So there's a team of chemical scientists that were like, basically, I think we can get material to test. Wouldn't that be cool? And so they did. 
Um, so what they did is they found documents that they knew to, like, that they were written by Vlad, had been authenticated to, were written by Vlad the Impaler himself. Um, they found three of them, and they kind of reasoned your hand is going to touch the paper, different parts of your hand, a lot while you're writing. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so they've used this type of analysis on other historical documents to get information on people in the past, and, like, it's pretty cool. Um, so we can learn what was going on with these, what these people. Like, we're so, not talking about, like, DNA from that, are we? Really? Because, like, from, like, what, the, the oils in your I wouldn't hand say, I wouldn't skin? say necessarily like, DNA, but the proteins involved in things. Like, they can find evidence left over from your skin and sweat, like, chemicals your body is producing. You know what I mean? Really? Like, you can I analyze mean, like, the sweat. Like, like, if you were... Writing with, like, a quill or some kind of quill-like instrument, as I'm sure that they were doing. Like, you'd probably, like, be holding it with your non-dominant hand while your other hand wrote at some point. Sure. Well, I have some more information. Okay. Okay. Information is good. So, they applied and removed ethylene vinyl acetate. And that's apparently something that that kind of dissolves whatever was on the paper into that solution without causing any damage to the paper. Okay. Um, so I'm convenient. I'm pretty sure somebody worked pretty hard finding the thing that would work to do that. Um, I'm not sure convenient was, was the way it was discovered, but, um, they tested, you know, the, whatever they removed with mass spectrometry and they found more than 500 peptides. So, you know, small chains of pro, well, small chains of polypeptides. Uh, and they narrowed it to a hundred of them were human of human origin. Okay. So then they can analyze those peptides and find what they might correspond to. There's like databases of these things, right? So they found evidence that he probably had a ciliopathy. And I was like, okay, what's a ciliopathy? Go to like the Wikipedia. And it was like, just so complicated, just ridiculous levels. Um, Basically, basically ciliopathies are like a class of issues. Um, and they vary quite widely in what happens. So during when we develop, the stem cells use what are called cilia, like little hairs, to move around to different parts of the fetus. Um, and then, you know, the ones that settle in the kidney become kidney cells, you know, that kind okay. of thing. Um, okay. And it's very complicated. Embryology is so, it's so complicated, and I'm not going to be able to explain it. So this is all we're going with. Um, so if you have a ciliopathy, it's that your cilia didn't function correctly while this step was happening. So you have a malformation. Um, it can be, like I said, really severe, really mild malformation, basically. So um, basically... Did they give him, like, sharp teeth? I'm trying to... <laughs> I, I don't think that... I don't think that one. Okay. You could, you could get things like sinus inversus, like when your organs are flipped. Oh. Like the neared organ thing. Um, that anencephaly with like when the baby is born with a head that's kind of missing part of their brain or and or skull, so like those really bad ones, or there's like just like some sterility, like reproductive disorder, like it can be sure. a wide range of things. So we don't know exactly what that Vlad had, but obviously he didn't have anything as severe as having half his brain missing because he was smart, pretty yeah. smart guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but they also found evidence of some non-specific inflammatory diseases. Uh, they think maybe that would have caused him problems with his respiration or with his skin. 
But the most interesting one is mm. they found... Um, Can't be out in sunlight. Mm. <laughs> there you go. There you go. But this one, this one, I don't know how much is, is like uh, a vampire. It suggested he had hemolacria. That definitely has to do with the blood. Yeah, I was so. going to say that mm-hmm. something blood related. I don't know what, though. It's very lacria related to the blood. It is lacria. It mm-hmm. is crying. Oh. So um, he cried okay. blood. Interesting. Is the, is the, what we're saying here, which I can't get over because that's so wild that they have decided. But then, you know, I was, I was writing my notes and I was like, to be fair though, I don't think this guy sounds like the kind of guy that did a lot of crying. (laughs) Maybe. That's a good point. Like he would not have done the things that he did if he felt bad about them is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I don't... I don't that, he kind of seems like the get angry yeah, instead yeah. of get sad type of person. Yeah, I was going to say, like, well, you know, if he cried blood, I think people would have written that down, but then it's like, well, who would have actually seen him cry? Yeah. So, yeah, I had the same thought. Okay, now I thought we should finally maybe get around to talking about Vlad's life and the things he did and the things you probably thought this podcast would be about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, Good. Vlad is Vlad the Third specifically. Vlad, uh, I can't pronounce Romanian, Tepes, 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 it's T-E-P-E-S, I don't know yes. how you say that, that's that's Romanian, um, Vlad the Impaler is of course the most famous name he's known by, mm-hmm. and he's known by another name, but mm. I'm not going to say it yet, because it'll give away the story. Yeah. Oh, spoilers. Yeah. Okay, um, good. If you didn't know much about Vlad... Uh, suffice to say he was, uh, reportedly very sadistic, brutal leader, famous for torturing people. Pretty bloodthirsty, you might say. I might say that, Hmm. but, you know, also known for restoring the kind of economy and well-being of the area he ruled. So, you know, I guess he had some upsides. Sure. (laughs) Is that what you call it? Yeah, um, yeah. So Some he, advantages to killing everybody. <laughs> yeah. He was the... Okay, I did look up the pronunciation. I'm very sure about this one. Voivod. Oh, that's a word I know. And I'm shaking my head for all the listeners. It's, yeah, good visual joke. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here you go. Voivod. V-O-I-V-O-D-E. Okay. okay. Like, Not how I thought you would say it. Vowed but... to, you know, get back to the void. No, it's not English. Well, that's all I could base it (laughs) off of. Um, So they're kind of like a prince, kind of like a military leader, like a prince-military leader combo. They're like the people that, you know, rule in that area. Sure. In that system. So he was the voivod of this one I don't know how to pronounce, Valachia. I'm going to say Valachia. Okay. Um, But there are a lot of other pronunciations that I just found on the internet. Okay. There's many pronunciations, apparently. There you go. Nobody knows. Uh, So if you are, you know, like the majority of us, not necessarily familiar with the historical geography of medieval Europe, um, I don't worry, I looked it up. And we have Warren. And I think Everett also knows Everett also knows because he played EU4. That's how you know. He likes that game. That is how you know. That's how you know where that region is. (laughs) Yeah. And why it's so, you know, important. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That helps, actually. So the name Valachia is what's called an exonym. So it's the name that outsiders have given to that land, not the name they called themselves. So right. they didn't call themselves Valachians. 
they uh, use the term Tara Rumanesca. I'm also saying that one terribly, I'm sure. Tara Rumanesca. Um, yeah, meaning Romanian of... country or Romanian land. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Um, so, the term Wallachia derives from uh, a word Volhats used by the Germanic peoples and the early Slavs. There you're right, Warren. You're thinking it sounded Slavic. That's most of who is around that area, but not all. And, because uh, Romanians are also there. <laughs> and sure. Romanians aren't Slavic. No. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. I, I, I think, and I'm actually sure. If you're offended by that, uh, A, I'm sorry, and B, uh, try to find me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that one. But, I mean, Romanian is not a Slavic language. It's a Romance language. So, right. it would seem weird to me that Slavic people would not speak a Slavic language, but I could be wrong. Weird I'm not God. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, weirder things Um So the term Valhats uh, referred to Romans and other just in general foreign language speakers. Just like other people. Than them. And that same root word, the, the Val, Wall in it, is at the heart of other place names I found. So Wales, that's where that comes from. Mm. Cornwall. Mm. Wallonia. Oh, that's in, in Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. I was going to say that, or the Netherlands. I couldn't remember for a second there, yeah. so I'm glad you said something. Um, so, Wallachia is the first, was the first, independent Romanian principality. So, a bunch of smaller political units that had all sprung up in that area between the Carpathian Mountains and the Danube River. Um, all those people kind of united, and that's what formed Wallachia. We'll talk about the formation more in a little bit, though. Um, so to, to be clear, we're talking about the area north of the Danube and south of the southern Carpathian uh, mountain range. Mm-hmm. And right. then there's two other rivers kind of bordering the other sides, the Suret and the Milkov, even though I've never heard of those rivers. So <laughs> They're there. Yeah. And now you have. I believe you. Yes. Now I have is what I'm saying. Yeah. So about the creation of Wallachia, I'm not... Um, sure when exactly to say it happened, because, you know, there's like that official date and you're like, that's not the year that you're actually a sovereign state. That's just the year people finally decided to start calling, <laughs> calling you one, it. you know? Yeah. Um, well, so, it's hard. It's not like there was a UN back then to like approve yeah. Yeah. statehood right? or even statehood as a concept even existing at that time, which it didn't really. Right. So when did the citizens think that they were their own sovereign area and when did everyone else think that? Might be different things is all I'm saying. True. Um, so basically in the 11 and 1200s, we have waves of different nomadic peoples moving across this area. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1240s, it became kind of a frontier between the Golden Horde ah, the Golden of the Mongol Horde. Empire. Hmm. That's the westernmost part of their empire. And, you know, so that strip of land in between, that's Wallachia, or going to be. And then on the other side is the Kingdom of Hungary. Mm-hmm. And so, so basically, any Romanians living east of the Olt River paid tributes to the Mongols, and anyone Romanians living west of the river, well, they were oppressed by you know Hungary, kings of Hungary took all their as you do and oppressed them. Yeah, well, yeah. thanks, Hungary. Help, help! I'm being repressed. Is it repressed or oppressed? I always forget. I think it's repressed. I'm pretty sure it's repressed. Okay, I was apparently famous for saying that phrase when I was young. You said that a lot, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Good movie, too. Oh, very good. Excellent. 
So the Golden Horde's influence in the region started to decrease, though, at the end of the 13th century. century, And also the Kingdom of Hungary kind of had their own political crisis. So it left like wide open for Wallachia to seize their own independence and uh, try to get out under the thumbs of these other imperial powers. Uh, So the tradition, which people don't really think happened, but maybe, is that Wallachia is founded when someone named Radu Negru, Radu the Black, apparently, makes sense. Uh, He arrived in the 1290s after crossing the Transylvanian Alps with, quote, a great many following him. Sounds Um, like an army. Did they call those the Alps? Those are called the Alps, too? The Transylvanian Alps. Hmm. I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know everything. If my uh, well, just, like when you think of the Alps, you think of or Alps, you think of Switzerland, right? Yeah. Switzerland and Austria. I'm just Italy. quoting from their foundational story. I guess if they go, you know, west to east and then kind of down towards the south while they continue to go east, there could be the same mountain range. Yeah, that is very interesting. I didn't realize that those were also the Alps because you kind of get through Austria where there seems we to can be look some it up breaks after in the mountains, right? And see what we'll, we'll learn something. We will. Okay. Um. So. The, maybe we don't really know the real story, but they're thinking Basarab the first is going to be the guy who's their foundational leader. Um, he comes into power between 1304 and 1324. This is how accurate history is. Some somewhere in there, yeah, one of those times, mm-hmm. um, he either dethroned or peacefully succeeded Radu Negru. Who knows? Okay. Um, another enough. story is just that some Romanian lords got together and chose one of their own lords to be the leader, and he was Basarab. Another story is that Basarab I became ruler by simply just succeeding his father, Thocomerius. Thocomerius? It sounds very Latin. I was just going to say, that sounds so so Romania. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Shock. Um, Anyways, I don't know which of those stories is right. Uh, What I'm trying to say, though, is Basarab I was the first official ruler of Wallachia, that part's pretty clear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, a royal charter that was issued on the 26th of July, 1324, is the first actual document we have that references Basarab. So according to this charter, he was the voivode of Wallachia, and Wallachia was a subject of Charles I of Hungary. Okay, fair enough. Yes. As you do. I don't think he wanted to. Well, Yes. You, there was a lot of documents under duress in that time period. Right. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. the next thing we know is that Basarab, quote, became disloyal to the Holy Crown of Hungary mm. in 1325. Lines of St. Stephen. He sees the Banate of Severin, which sounds so cool, and I was so confused about what that was, the Banate of Severin, because yeah. I've never heard of any of those words. Actually, I heard the word of before. <laughs> but He becomes the potion master at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to look this up. A banate is like a mm, area of land occupied by your military, usually. Anyways, what this, what the banate of Severin was, was this border province, border area of the Kingdom of Hungary between the Danube and the Olt River um, that they just kind of used to house a bunch of troops so that no one would try to come invade. It was just like a fringe area they put troops. Yeah, it was a definitely okay. a thing back then. A banate. I yeah. So also called marches, I believe. They are. Mm-hmm. I saw that, and I was like, "That sounds weird." The March of Severin. When they said that, I was thinking it was not land. It didn't seem like land when you say the March of Severin. Mm-hmm. But 
The whole thing was confusing thing. to me. Yeah. Basically, he just took some area from Hungary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the... Yeah. You don't have to understand any of that other stuff. He, he took stuff from them. And he also raided the southern regions of the Kingdom of Hungary. So Charles I was unhappy. Oh, shocking. Uh, yeah, very surprising. Yeah, and he invades Wallachia. But the Wallachians did kind of uh, kick his butt. They ambushed him. Pretty much annihilated his royal troops in a the Battle of Posada. It was mm-hmm. between the 9th and 12th of November, 1330. So that battle effectively ended Hungarian suzerainty. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. See, you know this word. Yeah, I've read that word a lot, but I've, I, I've actually never really heard it pronounced. I, again, spent sense. some time on the internet figuring out how to pronounce that word. Great. Thank you. Suzerainty. You taught me something. So... Don't worry. If you don't know what that is, I'm going to talk about it in a second. It's a cool <laughs> word. It's got a Z in it. Right? Right. Um, yes, if anyone wants to know, it's S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N-T-Y. Suzerainty. Um, anyway, so that's the founding of the first independent Romanian principality. Um, we're going to do some more tangents. Sure. Great. I love it. Diverge from the story once again, because I want to talk about suzerainty, because... When I first saw that word, I was like, now what is this? I've never seen anything like this. This is mm-hmm. not a familiar looking word. Um, however, what it describes is certainly familiar. I, I knew about this. I just didn't know this word. So suzerainty is a political arrangement wherein, you know, a person or state controls a tributary person or state. So like, you know, a lord with peasants who pay them a tribute. Or in this case, a country like Hungary ruling over another country, Wallachia, which then owes them a tribute. Yeah. So like uh, how the English controlled this. Controlled. I'm saying controlled in quotes. It's the Scots and uh, the Welsh. Mm -hmm. Maybe. There's more to it. So the dominant party is the suzerain. Yes. And the subordinate party is called a vassal. Yeah. I've heard of the vassal thing before. I don't know why I've heard vassal state so much, but never the opposite. Because of EU4. Well, I mean, in every history I've read, I I've read about, this was yeah. a vassal of this, but you just never hear what the dominant, you never hear the suzerain part. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I haven't. Anyways, so suzerainty is different in an important aspect from sovereignty, because in suzerainty, the dominant state is typically only controlling the foreign policy of its vassal states, and it kind of lets them have a degree of control, sometimes a very large degree of control about their own internal policies Mm -hmm. whereas in sovereignty you're just like your laws are the same as the dominant country your money like you know what i mean that kind of stuff is all it's when you can like invade a country and beat them up pretty well but like not completely beat them up not enough to like absorb them into your country (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. so you're like okay fine or it would be too much effort to keep them completely under your will because they're too far away or they're too whatever it is so Mm -hmm. yeah so um tangent number two well, number two for now, probably four overall. <laughs> sure. Is about Basarab. More specifically, the surname, the modern surname, Basarab. Mm-hmm. Because in, you know, certain Romanian circles, the, you know, they're the founders of the whole area and the first Romanians and they're very proud of their surname and such. Um, so. Sense. The Basarab dynasty, and we'll mention this again later, is going to go on to rule Wallachia for like 300 years almost. 
um, okay. till 1601. So there's a somewhat passionate debate, apparently, among historians about the ethnic origins of that name slash person. Yeah, all that. Uh, so one camp thinks it has Indo-European slash Romanian origins. The other thinks it has an Asian, Cuman, Turkic origin. Okay, so, that would make sense. Apparently these two camps are fighting each other, you know. So they're going to do a study with the genographic project. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what they did was they analyzed Y chromosome, chromosome diversity. How different are your Y chromosomes? Of 29 Romanian men, obviously. Yeah. With the surname Basarab. Mm-hmm. Okay. They also did a group that was just 150 Romanian men from different areas of the country and 330 from surrounding countries. So they had these three groups to compare. Okay. Um, and they found that the, they found different Y chromosome lineages in the people that had the Basarab surnames. So not all of them could be direct descendants of this Basarab yeah, I'm dynasty. I'm sure some people just changed their names to that. Sure. Wait. To make to make themselves sound cool. Change their names or, you know, they call it a polyphyletic name. Um, yeah, that was going to be the second thing I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just got there too soon. Yeah, yeah. Yes, just, you're right. Multiple origins through history were like unrelated male founders all mm-hmm. found their own lineages. Um, so, yeah, it could have happened way back when or there could also be some elements of extra marital... Affairs producing oh, wow. male children and then you disrupt your Y chromosome lineage, right? Yeah. Um, but as for where the name originally came from, they found that all the Y chromosome lineages they, they identified in the modern day Basarab people, they have this Eastern European haplotype that was carried by the Romanians and the Cumans. Mm. Mm-hmm. Cumans were an Asian population. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the results can't distinguish between Cuman or Romanian. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that would prove which theory was correct at this point would be an actual genetic analysis of DNA from walking right. kings. That makes sense. And that doesn't seem likely, though it may happen. Who knows? Uh, so, yeah, that didn't settle things completely is what I'm trying to say. Shocking. They tried. Um, okay, I think I'm going to... I'm going to actually talk about Vlad very soon. We're, we're getting there. we got to jump back to Wallachia, where we left off and continue in the story. Okay. So near the end of the 14th century, um, the Balkans were becoming very important to the Ottoman Empire. Mm. Yes. Yes. Wallachians <laughs> uh, were now getting into a lot more conflicts with the Ottomans um, because they didn't want to become a vassal to the Ottomans. Uh, and the Ottomans had different ideas. <laughs> it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to repel the Ottomans. Yeah, they are uh, persistent. Uh, yeah. Persistent. Yeah, because he did well for a while. Um, the king, Murkia, Mercia, it has a C, I don't know if you pronounce it with a S or a K. Murkia, the first, was the ruler of Wallachia from 1386 to 1418. So he did a pretty mm-hmm. good job at first. He defeated the Ottomans over and over. He had an alliance with someone that will come up later, Sigismund, Sigismund of Luxembourg. Ah, uh, Luxembourg, of yeah. course. That's a ways uh, away. It is, yeah. He, he wasn't in Luxembourg. Oh, okay. He was just of Luxembourg. He yeah, was, that was the family name. Oh, okay, okay. He yeah. was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it was a good alliance. A it was a yeah. good, yeah. Okay. It was a good alliance. Before the Habsburgs okay. got that forever. 
Got it. Okay. Yeah. Understood. And he also was allied with Poland. And then I found it was a certain era of Poland that I've never heard of. Jag... Jagelon? Jagelion? Jagelon? You've seen that name a lot, but who knows yeah. how to pronounce it. Jagelon, Poland. Oh, God. I'm so sorry, everyone. This is... It's probably like a yeah. Jagelion. I don't know. I'm so sorry. I think, actually, technically, that name is Lithuanian. That doesn't help me. Yeah, okay. It doesn't help thank me you either. For your, thank yeah. you for your insights, but I can't pronounce yeah, the, the, These are the things that I Oh, it's Lithuanian. No now I know mark. how to pronounce it. Yeah, of course. Okay. As you predicted, the Ottomans were too powerful. And they ultimately did prevail. And in 1417, Wallachia was forced to sign a peace treaty accepting the suzerainty of the Ottoman Empire. Which continued mostly unbroken until the mid-1800s, actually. Mm-hmm. That was a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were quite a few rulers to follow after 1418. There's some fighting over the throne, but I'll sure. mention that maybe a little more later. We're going to skip ahead now directly to Vlad II. Not the third yet, the second. That, okay, he, okay. Getting closer. He was one of... Making some progress. Merkia the first's many illegitimate children. Oh, okay. So, illegitimate. Many illegitimate mm-hmm. children is what all the sources wanted to be very clear about. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Clear. Um, so I said we're going to talk about Sigismund again. Mm-hmm. So Vlad II actually spent his youth at the court of Sigismund, probably as a hostage. Yeah. However, however, when you're a royal hostage in the day, it's not so bad. Yeah, that's yeah, like education and networking. He was educated at Sigismund's courts. Yeah, he was taught very well. Lots mm-hmm. of things. Um, and at this time, I'd like to mention, Sigismund is not the Holy Roman Empire. He is merely the king of Hungary in Germany and Bohemia and, like, yeah. Croatia. And <laughs> yeah, He's the king sure. of a lot of things, but he's not yes. Holy Roman Emperor yet. Right. I'll come later. Still pretty... Probably pretty good guy to... To, to know. ...have in your back yeah. pocket as an alliance. Anyway, so... Vlad III then comes along. He is the second of four brothers. And they think he was born in 1431, probably in Transylvania. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's probably the last time he was... There. His fa- No, not there, but his family, like, owned... What I'm trying to say is there's a castle in Transylvania that's claimed to be one of his... He didn't own a castle in Transylvania. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, take that, people who claim that. Yeah. Eat it. And his mother was likely a woman named Princess... Unpronounceable name. <laughs> of Moldavia. <laughs> name. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, ready? C N. E A J N A. Snegia. 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 I would assume that the C would be Nina. silent. Yeah. Well, I don't like to make assumptions. Okay. Nina. I'm yeah. so so bad at pronouncing words. Okay, but that's that's his mother, probably maybe of Moldovia, princess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what also happened in 1431 though is Vlad II is admitted into the Order of the Dragon. Mm, that's important. That sounds cool. Yeah. It is important because... This, so this was a Christian military society that was founded in 1408 by Sigismund. Mm-hmm. And like the other chivalric orders, you know, all the different orders of this and the rose and the whatever. Garter. Um, yes. It was modeled on the medieval crusaders. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, its members were 24 high-ranking knights. And 
The society pledged to, one, fight heresy, but a big part of that was, two, stopping the Ottomans. That was pretty much their who pledges. Were, who, were, who were Muslims, just fight. so that we're all clear. It, well, that's yeah. how they're fighting the heresy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which would soon become the Protestants. Um, but we're not there yet. So, <laughs> no. So, Vlad II was granted the surname Dracul. Mm. Aho. Mm. Meaning? Oh. Of, of the dragon? The dragon? It just, well, Enter the dragon. Just Enter Bruce Lee. It's dragon. It's dragon. Okay, oh. so he's Vlad Dragon. He is Vlad Dracul, which means his son Vlad the Third was known as Vlad Dracule, oh. as in you know the little suffix part means son of oh. the dragon. Man, Bram Ooh. Stoker would love this. <laughs> Somebody so, tell him. <laughs> so, so we'll get there. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, yeah, now I can tell you his other name was, you know, Vlad Dracula. Yeah. There you go. We've come full circle. Well, we will. From the vampire We'll jokes. get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in 1436, Vlad II became the voivod of Wallachia with Hungarian backing and support. Um, but Sigismund then dies in 1437. Mm-hmm. And Sigismund was Vlad's yeah. most powerful uh, friend. Ally. A, call, a friend, maybe friend. Friend ally. Yeah. Fra- friend ally. <laughs> yeah. Friend ally. Which really, as you can imagine, weakens Hungary. Yes. Yeah. And so Vlad II switched sides. He's going to ally himself with the Ottomans now, uh, with the leader Sultan Murad II. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's various stories about this as well because it's history. But either Murad invites Vlad II to come over with his two sons. Or orders Vlad to send him his two sons and holds them hostage. Yeah, there's probably Again, a fine line between those two things. Right. Yeah. Um, basically, it's all about the subtext. Vlad II yeah. was not known as the most loyal dude around. Sure. He kind of kept flip-flopping around and just catering to his own interests. So the Sultan wanted some way to control him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, this was not mean hostage-taking. They, no? The two sons were educated, mm-hmm. trained in a lot of things, you know, that kind of that kind of business. Um, but in 1447, Vlad II was kicked off the throne of Wallachia by the local boyars. Boyars. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Again, another word I can't pronounce. Um, who were... That's just like the nobles. The aristocrats. The nobles. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then they killed him. Oh, And nice. they also... Killed his older brother, Merkia II, who was blinded and buried alive. It was not very nice of them. Oh. Hmm. Should have so, just been taken hostage instead. Apparently that's much better. Yeah. yeah. They should have tried that. Yeah. Um, so Janos Hanyadi. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, there you go. Got it. The regent of Hungary was apparently the one who kind of instigated this whole assassination plot. Oh. And uh, he appoints Vladislav II, who was another Wallachian nobleman, to be the new voivod. Mm-hmm. So that is important because Vladislav is from the opposite house as Dracula. Like that's the two houses. Oh, like the rival one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. He is a, a rival. The rival family. Okay. Um. So it's at this point in 1447-1448 that the leaders of the Ottoman Empire release Vlad the Third, who is 16 years old, mm-hmm. to go seek the the throne. throne so he could cause internal trouble. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, with the Ottomans' help, 
a 16-year-old Vlad goes and expels Vladislav II from Wallachia. It helped that he was already away, actually, on a military expedition. <laughs> so he just kind of rode up and sat in the throne for a while until he got back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're in my chair. Am I? Yeah. Exactly. Am I? Exactly, because the Hungarians reinstated Vladislav two months later. So oh. it didn't didn't go so well. Okay. Vlad III then has to go into exile. Yeah. And nothing much is known about what he did for the next eight years. Except for he was moving around the Ottoman Empire, Moldavia. He was in maybe Transylvania. Yeah, mm-hmm. wherever he gets some blood. Wherever people <laughs> let him. Partying. Be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They had to agree. They didn't want to piss off Hungary. It's, it's tough. One of those student backpacking trips through Europe. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. he's 16, 17 at that point, right? That's yeah. prime age for backpacking. Yeah. Sowing the wild Romanian oats. But then the next thing we know, sometime during this off period, we... Okay, he switched sides. Now he's got the military support of Hungary. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Seems like he's been all that oat suing. Yeah. Yeah. Just Hungarian takes after his dad. Yeah. They yeah. don't have loyalty. They have loyalty to themselves and their people. So Vladislav II then changes his alliance to join the Turks. They just switch sides. Of okay. course. Yeah. So Vladislav III apparently meets, or Vladislav meets Vlad III. Oh, dear. Told you everyone's name is the same. Yeah. Um, on the outskirts of a place called Targoviste, maybe? Maybe that's how you say that. Okay. On July 22nd, 1456. And supposedly what happens is that Vlad Dracula beheads Vladislav during hand-to-hand combat, but that might just be a story to make him sound cool. It does sound kind of cool. Yeah. It's so, also a good way to, like, legitimize... How do you behead someone with hand-to-hand combat? I don't... Hand-to-hand didn't literally mean they were fighting each other, like, with their fists. Does it not? No. No. Okay. Swords and Oh, right. Okay, and I understand. Weapons. I understand. Yeah. I was really worried for a second that he was... Well, like, you punched him super good. <laughs> Pulled right off. off. I don't yeah. know. Okay. I was scared. Pulled, Anyways. <laughs> pulled a Hulk. Yeah. Wow. Well, actually, I don't know if the Hulk ever tore someone's head off, but he definitely could have. Well, they wouldn't show it on camera. That's not very, like, team-friendly. Well, what if it was, like, a robot? Oh, yeah, maybe. They would do that. Probably could find an instance of that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, as a person that didn't know any of this story, at this point, my question was, like, why does everyone want to control this area? Like, why are Hmm. empires constantly fighting over this area, was my question. It's mm-hmm. a good question. Um, and the answer turns out to be advantageous geography. Sure is. Um, which people love land. Is probably the same reason it's always, people always fight over a certain area of land is advantageous geography, but I will explain. Yes. Um, so that's the Carpathian region after the mountain range. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, very important politically, economically, that kind of thing. So Transylvania was very mineral rich. Probably still is. I don't know. Anyways, and they exported these minerals to Nuremberg, which is really far away from Transylvania. It is... Um, it's not that far away, is it? Well, 850 miles, which I forgot to convert to kilometers. So, I don't know, like 1,300 kilometers? That's in the middle of Germany. It's, 1,300 kilometers is a long way to go when you have a horse. True. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> and they used the minerals in Nuremberg to make armaments. Of course. Mm-hmm. And and that part's not shocking. The arms yeah. and cloth were traded back in the other direction, so we've got yeah. a major trade corridor. Yep, is my okay. impression. Okay, that makes sense. So the state, not just Wallachia, Serbia and Bosnia, mm-hmm. also kind of with Wallachia, were this buffer zone area. 
mm-hmm. at this time between the Kingdom of Hungary and the Ottomans. Right. Um, so, at this time, the Kingdom of Hungary includes most of the Transylvanian Plateau. Yeah. Um, which, and then it's surrounded to the north and the east and the south by the Carpathian Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the mountain passes to the east, which is leading to Moldavia. Um, that area, they were narrow and easy to block, which is advantageous militarily. Absolutely. Speaking. Yeah. I uh, mean, it's probably also important to note that the Kingdom of Hungary at this time was like massively bigger than like Hungary as we know it today. Because it included that area of Transylvania, it included what is today in, like Slovakia and the, I was going to say Czech Republic, but they don't call them that anymore, Ch- Czechia, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the Kingdom of Croatia. I-, I think they had Croatia at this time, pretty sure. Yeah. So it was like a big, it was a big country. Yeah, back then. They do have Croatia, but it's called something else, like most things. Fair enough. I can, I looked at the word and was baffled. I, I just, my brain clouded over, I can't. Say whatever that was. I'm not good at languages. Okay. Um, in Wallachia, to the south of where we were just talking about, there were two very strategic passes. Uh, one was called Ternurosu, and one was Pradel? Predial? Mm. Something like that. Okay. Anyways, these passes formed the gateway to Hungary. Yeah. So right. everyone wanted to control access to these trading routes, which is... Why they were always fighting to try to control the voivodes of Wallachia. Mm, totally makes sense. Yeah. Got it. So getting into uh, Vlad's actual rule, because so far he hasn't ruled for more than two months. That's that's not going to do it. Um, there's also some issues in Wallachia created internally by all the boyars just kind of feuding with each other. As, as typically happens, yeah. A as lot of internal strife. Uh, trade had ceased Fields were not planted. There was lawlessness everywhere. It was the Wild mm. West. It was bad. So then Vlad III begins his reign with a very strict crackdown on crime. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he had a zero tolerance policy for even very minor offenses like lying. Ooh. Oh, really? Yikes. Okay. Yeah. All right. He's pretty brutal. Um, he selected a bunch of commoners and foreigners for the public positions and they think he did this because he was creating people that were kind of completely dependent on him. Kind of yes-men yeah, okay. type of thing? Yeah, they didn't mm-hmm. need, you know, they weren't already a noble and they were just, like, doing this on the side. They, like, they needed Vlad's yeah. approval to stay in this job. Um, and also because he could just execute them if he felt like they were doing a bad job. And they wouldn't mm-hmm. have, like, a powerful family pissed off against him if he did that. Right. Yeah, and he's the boy about so apparently he's allowed. Um, so... As for this whole thing where the boyar supposedly killed his father and older brother, he kind of took a scorched earth approach. Mm. Okay. Some retribution going on here. So this is the story. In 1459, he invites 200 boyars to his great Easter banquet. Or maybe it's 500 or maybe it's 50 because every story is different. Oh, okay. He invites the boyars. It seems like a big difference between 500 and 50. Exactly. These are all different numbers I've seen. I more often saw the larger numbers, but who knows? Oh, it sounds more dramatic. And their yeah. families. He invited their, their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, when they all got there, he, of course, you know, locks the castle up and then starts having them all killed. So women and the elderly were stabbed to death and impaled, but the men were forced into some slave labor. 
Um, most of them convenient would die of exhaustion while building Poinari Castle, one of his favorite residences. Oh, great! So yeah, then uh, he replaces them by creating like new classes of elites. The, yeah. the, the Dehi Vatehi, which is a military division that was made up of farmers. Great. Okay. Yeah, and the Sluhi, a kind of national guard, and then he liberated Vallakia's peasants by basically. Saying you don't have to pay tribute to the Ottoman Empire anymore, which the Ottomans did not like. Oh, oh shock! Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, but then there was some other things he did. He didn't like homeless people and beggars because he thought they were just all thieves. So at one point, there's okay. a story that he invited a large number of them to a feast in apparent generosity, and then locked all the doors and burned them alive. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Nice cool dude. story, bro. Uh, he exterminated the Romanis in his area, or forcibly enlisted them into the, his army. Okay. One, of, one of those two things. Uh, he also didn't do great with the Germanic peoples. Mm-hmm. Um, he made much heavier tax burdens for for them and blocked their trade if they refused to pay him and stuff like this. Um, many of the Germans. The were living there were Saxons. Um, so mostly... Oh, Saxons end up everywhere. Mostly yeah. well-to-do merchants. But um, Vlad III was thinking, no, you're allies with my enemy, so I don't like you. Uh-huh. And we know what Vlad does when he doesn't like somebody. Invites him to a nice feast. <laughs> this <laughs> Locks time, him in a castle. This time yeah. he came to them. Oh, okay. Oh, and convenient. he just, you know, had his army start raising entire Saxon villages, impaling thousands of people. You mm-hmm. know, his jam. Um, <laughs> yep. So, in 1459, a Transylvanian Saxon city called Kronstadt, today it's called Brasov, um, they supported a, one of Vlad's rivals. Mm-hmm. So, he decided to respond, uh, you could say savagely. So first he placed some trade restrictions on Saxon goods in Wallachia. Okay, reasonable. Then he reportedly had 30,000 people impaled and dined among them so he could watch them suffering and dying while he ate his dinner. Okay. And then he had Kronstadt burned to the ground. Yeah. And then he went back to Wallachia and impaled Saxon merchants who tried to import the products anyways. Oh, okay. (laughs) So... Break my embargo, uh, will you? Yeah. 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 Um, Here's a spear for you. And then, you know, in retaliation, some poems started coming out from the Saxons being printed about how Vlad III Dracula was a blood drinker. Hmm. Which, oh, as is this you where we get imagine, into the printing press thing? Yeah. Not get into it. I already explained it. But I'm illustrating the, the importance of, it? of... Well, of, like... Yes. Yes. Okay. So those stories strongly influence this eruption of vampire fiction that, you know... Spread again like wildfire throughout the West, in particular in Germany. Mm-hmm. And continues to this day. Yeah. So, I don't know in Germany, but here it does, certainly. Well, Stephanie Meyer would disagree. Oh, do you know popular culture in Germany? Because I'm not up to. No, no, I was. She wrote Twilight. Is she German? No. Oh, okay. But, you know, I'm just saying, continuing to this Twilight day, and... vampire fiction. Oh, yes, it's definitely. It's still very popular. Yeah. It's still very popular, yes. I'm just not sure if it's popular in Germany. <laughs> They've got lots of things to write about there. They do. Um, So, you know, impaling. (laughs) Yeah, back to impaling. Good segue. I didn't realize what it was. For some reason, I thought it was more of sticking people's heads on a pike after they were dead to, like, 
warn other people off. I thought mm-hmm. that's what impaling meant. That's not what it means. Um, it's uh, it's a torture as much as it is an execution. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So it's where a wood or metal pole is inserted, you know, up through a hole you may already have. Mm-hmm. In the butt. Uh, or another one if you're a woman. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Um, and usually the exit Ugh. wound happened near the victim's neck or shoulders or even their mouth. Yeah. Yikes. And in some cases, they intentionally made Oof. the pole rounded, n- not sharp, so that they could prolong the suffering of the victim. Sure. Yeah. Damn. Um, it could take hours or days for impaled people to die. Yeah. So it's uh, similar to crucifixion, but... It's pretty bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I was going to say, like, that does sound a bit similar, it's but I think I'd rather be on the cross things. Icky. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, um, Vlad had other enemies, too. The other people that he persecuted, mm-hmm. um, including the Catholics. Mm-hmm. He attacked the Catholics a lot, too. Catholic. Because they were, they were mostly Orthodox. Yes. In that area. Orthodox Christian, yes. Orthodox, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, This came to the attention of Pope Pius II, who wrote a report in 1462 claiming that Vlad III had killed some 40,000 Catholics. It may be an exaggeration. Sure. As you do with the numbers at that time, as you probably noticed. Yeah. Everybody liked to exaggerate numbers. Um, So you'll notice that uh, Vlad, you know, is again fighting the Turks. That's what we're doing. In 1459, Mm -hmm. Mehmed II was now the leader. Um, So he sent an emissary to Vlad claiming you need to pay 10,000 Ducat tribute and send 300 young boys. And uh, Mm -hmm. the diplomats that were there uh, wouldn't remove their turbans because of their religion, their beliefs. Yeah. Vlad told them to remove their turbans and they did not and so the popular story is that vlad the third then orders their hats nailed to their heads (laughs) of course (laughs) the turks Uh, were unhappy yet again with these decisions that vlad uh is making and so they invite him for peace talks in 1961, or 19, longer than I thought. He must be a vampire because he's lived a long time. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want to have their peace talks till 1961. They weren't ready to have that. No. <laughs> um, but in 1461, uh, they were going to ambush him, obviously. Yeah. And not, re- but but Vlad said okay, and then marched the other way and invaded the Turkish areas south of the Danube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, he's not dumb. Yeah, that probably worked out fairly well for him, is, is my guess. So then in the spring of 1462, Mehmed II assembles an army of like 90,000 people. Mm-hmm. They march on Wallachia. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, Vlad, you know, really takes it to them and impales more than 23,000 prisoners and their families and puts them on display all along the enemy's marching route oh. outside this city that we mentioned, Targoviste. Okay. Um, and it is said that the sight of this, quote, forest of the dead was so horrifying that Mehmed II turned around and marched back to Constantinople. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can't blame him for that. That would be a quite unpleasant thing to witness. Yeah. There was a letter from Vlad III that they found that he wrote to Matthias I, who was at the time the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. 
explaining that he had, quote, killed peasants, men and women, old and young. We killed 23,884 Turks, without counting those whom we burned in homes or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Wow. Just the civilians. Yeah. yeah, we just counted the civilians that we killed, except yeah. for the ones we burned. Yeah, the whole families. Um, so, but the Turks ultimately Jeez. prevailed because the Wallachian boyars defected to Radu, Radu, Vlad the Third's younger brother, mm-hmm. who, unlike Vlad, didn't seem to mind his time in uh, captivity with the Ottomans and was kind of on their side. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Vlad was mad about the whole being held hostage thing, so he was not. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So, um, basically, Radu told all these aristocrats that if they side with the Ottomans, then they'd get back all the privileges that Vlad the Third had taken from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that worked, <laughs> shockingly. Nice. And the general Romanian peasants were kind of scared of Vlad. So they were like, sure, Radu, I will, I'll, I'll give you my support. Yeah. Um, so... At this point, Matthias I, Holy Roman Emperor, was able to take him prisoner. Mm-hmm. Not the Turks. I'm so confused. Well, I mean, the Holy Roman Empire had a lot of influence back then. Sure so did, yeah. I'm sure he could hire some kidnappers. No, but I'm saying, were they on the same side as the Ottomans? The Holy mm-hmm. Roman Empire? Yeah, I thought no. the Turks... That's why I'm confused, because I thought the Ottomans were the one that were, like, going after him. And well, then... I mean, they could have... Everyone has their own sides, right? And they're I'm they're sure all going after him? They're all, sometimes I'm sure their interests align, but for different reasons. Yeah. That must have been the case now because, you know, Matthias I is the one taking him prisoner. Yeah. After the Turks orchestrated him to lose his throne, basically. Yes. Um, so after Radu's death in 1475, the local boyars now decided, and the rulers that kind of were in the surrounding states, um, they wanted Vlad to return to power. So, Matthias I... I miss that guy who used to impale everybody. Yeah. yeah. Don't you miss that guy who used to kill everyone? You know, it was 13 yeah. years. They forgot just how bad it was. They thought it was it got kind of that bad, right? We were making money at he least. He softened up. Yeah. He softened up, surely. Yeah. So, Matthias I sends Vlad to go recover Wallachia for Hungary. Uh-huh. Um, Which, you know, didn't go great. So, he dies in 1476. Right mm-hmm. after this, during the fight with the Ottomans. Um, not 100% clear how he died. One theory is that one of his men was bribed by the Ottomans, by Mehmed II. And he snuck up from behind and beheaded him. That's one story. Okay. Um, Good beheading. <laughs> Coming full circle from him beheading. There's the also some client. argument about where he's where he's buried now. Yeah. So the tradition is that... You know, traditional story, Vlad III's head was embalmed and sent to the Sultan in Constantinople to be put on display above mm-hmm. the city's mm-hmm. gates, that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the rest of his body is supposed to be buried in a church near Bucharest by local monks. But there is talk that maybe he was actually buried in the Comana Monastery in southern Romania. He founded that monastery in 1461 and it was close to where he died. I don't know. There's no, some, there's some the theory. Yeah. So, overall, during his rule, they estimate he might have killed around or more than 80,000 people, but it's almost impossible to know real numbers, so... It's an impressive claim, nonetheless. A large amount of those were by impalement. A large amount. Before they invented bombs, that's a good... That's a good number. Bombs (laughs) and machine guns and, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Um, But... 
people are careful to point out that Vlad III might have just been a footnote, basically, in the Middle Ages textbooks, if it weren't for a book that was published in 1820, Ooh. which was written by one William Wilkinson, who was, okay. the, who was the British consul to Wallachia. And the book, um, okay, I love old book titles. They're so explanatory. My goodness. Okay, ready? The title was An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia with Various Political Observations Relating to Them. <laughs> nice. So is the book like short stories and poems about like unicorns or something? Good guess. <laughs> okay. But I have an inkling. It is a history book. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this history and book. And some observations. Yeah, and some observations <laughs> about policies and Observational politics. Book. Yeah. My journal. Um, it mentions Vlad, you know, shockingly, as a notorious warlord. Mm-hmm. And Irish writer Bram Stoker came across this book in 1890. Oh, I had no idea he was Irish. That's interesting. Oh, there you go. You learned something new. Yeah. Uh, he was at the time already in the process of writing a novel he was calling The Undead about mm-hmm. a fictional character that he, at the time, had named Count Vampire. Probably Vampire. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, afterwards, he writes in his journal, quote, Voy, voy, voy vow Dracula. Dracula, in Valachian language, means devil. Valachians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous, either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. Okay. So. Seems like a lot of criteria. He was taken by the name Dracula. That was, he thought, cool, it's like devil, even though it was dragon in there. Anyways, yeah. their language. Well, dragon is still cool. Dragon is arguably cooler than devil, but. Yeah, well. You could have a debate about that. But it makes sense, right? Yes. Oh, this devilish It does thing. sound cool at the end so, of the day. Then in 1897, he publishes his novel set in Transylvania, Transylvania with Count Dracula. Mm-hmm. The novel was named Dracula, if you were still mm-hmm. waiting for me to tell you. Um, so was that the inspiration? Was Vlad the inspiration for Count Dracula? Yes and no. Yeah. Like all things. Yeah. It was certainly a part of it. Yeah. But we already know that he was writing this novel about a vampire. It's not like yeah. he wasn't writing it already. Mm-hmm. Um, and vampires were apparently quite in vogue in the late Victorian. And, uh, there was a lot of gothic works about them. Um, there was one novel called Dracula. So Bram Stoker didn't invent vampires? Well, certainly not. Okay, I didn't know that. I'm not a vampire oh, history guy. There was vampire, there's history vampire guy. mythology throughout Europe vam- and yeah. and the Americas even. Definitely mm-hmm. before the Should have known. Irish never produced anything original. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Those fighting Ooh. words. We have a lot of Irish listeners. Don't oh, do offend we? people. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Irish people. I'm, so- I'm, a, I'm a filthy That's English why I feel- imperialist. <laughs> That's yeah, why I feel especially me. horrible when I'm trying to say an Irish word in this podcast and I'm like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and then I make a terrible attempt, I'm sure. Irish pronunciation is also a tough one. Like yes. that Icelandic episode, oh my god. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, there was a novel called Dracula and Captain Vampire. Oh, no, sorry. Called Captain Vampire. Uh, okay. Captain I was comparing, Vampire. I was compa- <laughs> comparing it to Dracula. There was Captain Vampire in 1879 and Dracula in 1897. Mm-hmm. Um, this book was written by a 19-year-old Marie Nizette Belgian woman. And oh, she nice. was related to Romanian exiles. And apparently there's a lot of similarities and connections that people have made here. And... There was, you know, this is just one example, 
but there was other gothic vampire works that you could see the influence of in Stoker's Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is so a part... So I have a question. Yes. If a whole bunch of people were doing vampire stuff, and it wasn't really originally, even someone wrote a book about Dracula, then how come everyone remembers Bram Stoker's book? Was it just really good? Was it just like a really good book? That's a good question. Um, I think... A, it was longer than a lot of other... Like, a lot of books weren't that long at the time. Okay. So I think there's more fleshed out mythology and lore that he lays down. You know what I mean? Like, more like... Sure. I'm going to yeah, say vampires building. are more like this. Okay. But as to why it was so popular, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Hmm. On Jeopardy, my 19th century literature skills are bad. <laughs> I get I get none of those right. <laughs> I relate to that, which is why I don't know anything about Bram Stoker or the book. Yeah. Okay, yeah. um, but apparently there's a part in Dracula where Dracula is, like, sketching this historical panorama for his guest, Jonathan Harker. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, almost directly out of the Wilkinson history book. Oh. So there okay. are some influences, for sure. Um more recently, some scholars and historians have proposed an alternative theory for the primary influence or source behind Dracula. Mm-hmm. And it is not what you would think. Okay. I was surprised. Ooh. So, there was a 19th century cholera epidemic that killed a thousand people or more in this town called Sligo in okay. Western Ireland. Uh-huh. I've heard of that. And Charlotte Thornley, who was Bram Stoker's mother, was a 14-year-old girl during this time period in this town. Mm-hmm. And she told her son all about it. Mm-hmm. Um, they studied her writing, Charlotte Thornley's writing, in 2018. And they had said that Bram, as an adult, asked his mother to write down all her memories of the epidemic for him. And then he supplemented it with his own research of their epidemic. Mm-hmm. So why this is relevant is that when it happened, there was quite a lot of panic uh, and pandemonium. They didn't know how, they didn't know what they were doing. No one knew anything about medicine. Yeah. yeah. So basically they wanted to quarantine the town. Yeah. And so to stop people from fleeing and spreading it like, you know, a plague, um, they dug trenches around the town, blocked off all the roads. And uh, basically the doctors and nurses took the cholera patients and gave them a lot of opium. Laudanum. Yeah, as you would. And just threw them into mass graves. Then oh, they great. buried them alive. Yikes. Fun. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, it was either that or become a corpse laying in the streets. Apparently it was pretty disease, bad times. Disease prevention was different back then. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in an interview about Dracula, which apparently there are very few of because he was a very private person. Yeah. Stoker acknowledged that his story was inspired by the idea of someone being buried before they were fully dead, as Dracula is undead. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that makes sense. Possibly, this is a major influence on his storytelling. Got it. Yeah, Oof. I know that's you know not really about <laughs> Vlad, but I wanted to say that. Well, it's about his um, legacy. Yeah. So what happened? I want to just briefly touch on what happened after this in Valachia. Can't just leave it hanging. What happened? Vlad dies. That's it. Mm-hmm. Now, so Vlad had three sons. Yeah. His eldest son uh, was Minia. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Minia, the wrongdoer. <laughs> oh, or, or the mean or the evil. Those are, those are the translations of those things. Okay. Um, he was born in 1462 to Vlad and his first wife, who is unidentified. Oh. His first wife. Sure. Uh, his and sec- 
the second son is unnamed. Unnamed second son. Okay. He was killed before 1486. That's what we know. Okay. His third son was Vlad. Hmm. Vlad Vlad IV. Yeah. They didn't call him that, apparently, but... Well, I guess he didn't rule anything. Unsuccessfully tried to claim the throne of Wallachia around 1495. Did not. Yeah. Um... That close to being the fourth. Yeah. That close. Very close. After his father's death, so after Vlad died, Minia tried to succeed him. Um, but for years, he was kind of going nowhere. And in 1508, he finally succeeded in getting the throne, and he started to rule alongside his own son, Mercia III. Mercia. Mercia. Dracula. And when you say Mercia, it just makes me think of the old English kingdom. So I know. So can you just say Mercia? Just okay. to differentiate them in okay. my mind. Um, but, you know, these boyars just are constantly unhappy and flipping support to whoever they want, and... Yeah, who's going to give me the least, the most tax breaks. Well, and Minhia, like his father, was, uh, exhaustingly... Evil? ...supportive of Christianity. You can say it like that. Okay. You were going in a different direction there, I think. (laughs) He didn't like the Turks. Wanted to kick them out. Yep. And uh, also allowed a lot of corruption in his highly placed positions, nobles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the boyars overthrew him again. But they were the ones who named him Minya the Evil or Minya the Wrongdoer. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. To, you know. Victors write the history books. Exactly. Exactly. So Vlad's enemies, you know, give him a mean name and kick him out, basically. Yeah. Um, I found this passage... From a monk who was an abbot and like a historical chronicler um, about Minia. Yeah. And he described him as follows. And he was definitely one of his known enemies. So, again, keep mm. that in mind. Okay. Quote, as soon as Minia began to rule, he at once abandoned his sheep's clothing and plugged up his ears like an asp. He took all the greater boyars captive, worked them hard, cruelly confiscated their property, and even slept with their wives in their presence. <laughs> he cut off the noses okay. and lips of some, others he hanged, and still others drowned. But he didn't impale anybody. Yeah. Doesn't sound like it. Oh. That's where he went wrong. Vlad didn't pass that down. Yeah. Um, So it's not genetic. (laughs) I don't think so. Thank God for that. Don't know how that can work. Acquired (laughs) evolution. No. (laughs) Um, So, basically what happens next is what's been happening this whole time. There are two houses and they're fighting over the throne. There are two lineages of Voivods that both stem from Basarab. Yep. So the house of Draculesti, you know, Vlad, mm-hmm. yep. Draculus. The house of Danesti, if you can't guess, that was founded by a guy named Dan. Mm. And uh, that's the line that... I love, I love Dan. He's fun at parties. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the lineage Vladislav belongs to. Yeah. So the house of Draculesti and the house of Danesti, constant, just struggled back and forth for the throne. Mm-hmm. Uh, that started before Vlad the Impaler came into power and continued yeah. to the early 16th century. Eventually, the Draculesti would kind of dominate the principality, and then in 1600, um, Wallachia began to be ruled in common with Transylvania and Moldavia by some guy that I'll pronounce wrong. My high vitiazel. Oh, my God. I have no idea how you pronounce that. Some guy ruled all those places. Okay. It okay. ended that arrangement. Um, so starting with Vlad II, there were about 30 rulers of Wallachia from that Draculesti dynasty. And almost all of them were called either Vlad, Radu, Mercia, or Minia. Sure. Just 
all those names kept repeating. The tradition. It was yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Just the same as the Henrys, George, Charles, yep. and James. Louis. Oh, well, that one too. Yeah. 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 Um, so in 1859, Wallachia unites with Moldavia to form the United Principalities. In 1866, they changed their name to Romania and officially became the Kingdom of Romania in 1881. Yep. Um, and later, the Austro-Hungarian Empire would, you know, fall apart. And they finally... Rip. <laughs> finally gave all these lands, like Transylvania and other parts, to Romania, and they become the modern Romanian state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's... Uh, that's all that I know. Does anyone else have any interesting things to share or stuff that I missed? Uh, no, I think you nope. covered most of it. Oh, or God. all of it that I know. <laughs> the geography is hard for me because I don't know that area very well. I didn't even know there was a mountain range called the Carpathians. So yeah. I did know about the Danube River. Woohoo. Good. Good. Nice. Ding. Points. Uh, I knew about the Holy Roman Empire. I just didn't know anything about them. I've just heard that and read that and wrote in it my podcasts a few times before. Yes. Yeah. Makes sense. It's very interesting. Other than that, I didn't le- I didn't know much of this stuff before I started. Um, I even knew Vlad the Impaler and didn't quite know what impaling was. So I'm not sure if I'm happy or sad to have <laughs> that information. Yeah, that may not be a step forward. <laughs> yeah. Um, Next time, I think I'm going to talk about science. It's been a while. Okay. There's lots of history. Yeah. I kind of talked about science and history in that last one about Trofim Lysenko. That's that's true. That was a fun were, one. Check it, was it a out. Twofer. Check it out if you're interested in politics mixing with your science real hard. Mm-hmm. Paulians or scientics. 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 That's good. I like that one better. Maybe I'll talk about monotremes next time. I've been, sure. I've been meaning to do an episode on them. But anyways, I do want to say that we have an email. It is teachmesomething4, and that is the number four, not the word, at gmail.com. Uh, email me anything you want. Yeah, comments say hello. And comments and concerns and episode suggestions, anything like that. Yeah. If you're an angry Irish person complaining about me. Email that too. Yeah, just exactly. just be polite about it. But just be, be specific that you're complaining about Warren and not yeah, yeah. me. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, I do want to thank Warren again for taking the time to come record an episode with us. Uh, hope to have him back soon. Right, I'll be back yeah. at some point. You can't Absolutely. get rid of me. Good. I wasn't trying. Good. Um, and thank you to all you wonderful listening people who listened to this episode. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.